Hola, hola, chulas. Hi there. We are experts in intuitive eating for on-again, off-again chronic dieters, and we are here to help you take the guilt and stress out of eating so you can become the first in your family to break the diet cycle, just like we are in our families. We want you to be who you are without food guilt. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, No More Guilt for Melissa and Your Latina Nutritionist for Delina. Are you ready? Let's break the diet cycle. Hola Chula, it's me, Dalida. Before we start, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Your Latina Nutrition. What you are about to listen to is not a professional coaching or counseling session. Each episode is a one-time conversation meant for educational purposes. We are dietitians, but we're not your dietitian. Remember that podcasts don't constitute treatment. If you have concerns about your dieting behaviors, seek out guidance from a medical or mental health professional. And if you're looking for a community, tools to ditch the diet, help with finding authentic health and keeping your culture alive, join my membership brought to you by today's sponsor, me. Have you heard about social determinants of health before? Addressing the impact of systemic problems to health, included the impact of racism, is becoming more common, and for a good reason. Though individual behaviors matter when it comes to your health, they are not the be-all, end-all solution that diet culture says they are. In this episode, we interview public health expert and registered dietitian Deanna Bellany Lewis to answer why social determinants matter and how to think about this stuff in your own mission to break the diet cycle. We know this topic can be heavy. Keep an open mind and know we've included some important resources for you in show notes to dig in and do your own research. Lean in with us. Before we start, have we told you lately how much we appreciate you? We appreciate that so many of you are out there breaking the bonds of generational diatrauma by opening your minds and learning with us. It really means something, you know? And Delina and I created this podcast because our mission is to break the diet cycle for the next generation. And we know that can't happen without you. That's why if you found benefit from this podcast, we really want you to review and rate us. You know, someone just like you is feeling really lost right now. And by rating and reviewing the podcast, you make it more likely that she's going to find the information she needs, just like you did, to break free from the diet cycle. Will you chip in with us and rate or review the podcast today? Hello, Chulas. We are here and we are here with Deanna, who is like one of my favorite people in this whole wide world, Melissa, don't get jealous. I understand her greatness <laughs> and I, I bask in the glow. <laughs> so we're just so excited to have you, Deanna. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you'll okay. probably do a way better job than, than I do at speaking. Cause I have a hard, apparently I just have a hard time speaking. So this okay. is a lie that Delina has been perpetuating I, for I, years I, now. My, my, my face is like, I just want to name that. <laughs> the scrunching on my face right now is, it's intense. <laughs> let's let's talk about that offline. I don't know that I agree with that either. Such a lie, but I am happy to introduce myself and thank y'all for having me on the podcast. So excited to be here. Big fans of both of you. So my name is Deanna Bellany Lewis. I'm a registered dietitian. I've, I've hopped around a couple of places in the last three years, but I'm currently living in Oakland, California in the Bay Area, but originally from Texas. And I like to just, you know, I love Texas. So I, I like to remind people of that. I 
am a public health dietitian. I work as a consultant at this place called JSI, but my heart is also with Diversify Dietetics, where I am the co-founder of that organization. We are a 501c3 nonprofit that is dedicated to increasing the racial and ethnic diversity of the field of nutrition by empowering nutrition leaders of color. And it, that has been such an amazing process. And how I met Delina, she was like one of our first RDN spotlights, one of our first like meetup hosts. She jumped in and has been a day one and a supporter. So yeah, I love all things related to health equity and public health and representation in the nutrition space and happy to be talking with you all today. First of all, you have that like elevator pitch down. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful. And, like it was like so seamless, but <laughs> I'm just so excited to talk to you about this because like you and I have actually done one presentation on this and we talk about this a lot. Um, I talk about this a lot. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand what social determinants of health are because our health is really not in our control as much as we think. So can you tell us a little bit about what social determinants of health are? Yeah, absolutely. It's a topic that I also love talking about. And yeah, we we co-presented at a food bank and, and talked a little bit about it with other kind of public health professionals. And I think it's becoming more of a mainstream conversation, which is really exciting. But essentially, social determinants of health are just like the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work play, worship, age, et cetera, all of that, that shape health. And so like simply put, it's just like the social conditions that impact your health. And so that could be things like, you know, economic stability and your physical environment, education, access to healthcare, relationships and support that you have socially. And one of the like the favorite visuals that I use is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Happy to send, send the link if it's helpful, but it really breaks it down. Like, okay, let's, if we think about economics, it's your employment, your income, your bills. It's, you know, if you're thinking about the environment, it's like, do you have access to housing or transportation or like safety in your neighborhoods? Is it a walkable neighborhood? One of my least favorite things about living in Houston, although I love the city so much, you would just like have a sidewalk that would just disappear. And then you're just in the middle of the street. Yep. Like it would happen all the time. I'm going to be like, who, who thought about this city planning where there's just no, no one, no one. And you're in like um, Narnia all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you think about like, a, you know, I, I am you know, privileged to, to not, you know, have, have a wheelchair or something that would require me to want to be like closer to on a sidewalk or just safer to be able to get around. And so education, it's your literacy, the languages that you speak. And if you're able to kind of communicate with folks within your neighborhood or, or services that you're trying to have access to, access to healthy foods that are also affordable and like attainable. Discrimination and racism, though, is how I like to, in the visual, I add a bar at the bottom that says systemic racism, because I think the role that racism and systems of oppression play impacts all of those things. There's like redlining and the role that that's had on housing. There's, you know, where grocery stores decide to put uh, their stores and where they decide not to and how, you know, that impacts Mm -hmm. communities of color disproportionately. And then all of that impacts again, your like mortality, your morbidity, your health function and health status. So there's just so many things, like you said, Delina, that impact your health that are outside of your control. And and we have to name that and, and try to support not just individual kind of pursuit of health, but those systems uh, contributors as well. Yeah. And I think, first of all, I love that you're in the public health space because this is something that I've said previously in, in the podcast that I'm constantly talking about. It's like, 
this idea, like the public, like public health campaigns know these things, but they come at it from such a like fear-based place. And it kind of just makes it seem like it's our fault that we don't have access to this, that it's our fault that there are no sidewalks, that it's our fault that the minimum wage is still $7.25 here in the Mm. state of Pennsylvania. Wow. Um, And that it's it's the individual's fault. And nobody's looking at that, like you said, the systemic issues that are really causing this. And I'm going to go, you know, and talk a little bit about, you know, like redlining. I think that that's something that we we should really discuss and how that affects healthcare, groceries, and even safe spaces for us to mm-hmm. like work on our health. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting how we love to individualize health and love to, you know, I, I always flash back to the beginning of the pandemic when I think it was like the Surgeon General was like, you need to tell your, your, your grandmas and, and your, you know, aunties and whatever, like to stop, you know, eating this or stop yeah. doing that oh. because their diabetes is what's causing them to have higher rates. And in the black community, he was speaking to specifically, uh, he was black Surgeon General. I think that was his title. Y'all can fact check me later, but just like the undertone of right, like it is your fault that you are getting COVID at a disproportionate rate. It is your fault that you have these chronic health conditions. And so, you know, do what you need to do to to get that in line. I I think it's a huge issue and something we need to reframe and start looking at the system and what role we can all play in that. Yeah. What would you say? I'm just curious about this. Like, what is the representation like among public health leaders? Because when Delina's like, it's such a fear-based message from my perspective as a white woman, I feel like it's so hard for people to understand that we need to dismantle white supremacy as a mm-hmm. as like a means to stop with this individualism. So like, why is the message so based on individual? Is it because of lack of representation in leadership in public health? Why do you think it yeah. is that we like latched on to that individual message in public health? Yeah, I mean, I think it's healthcare broadly speaking and. I mean, we know for our own field of dietetics and dietitians, what that representation does and slash does not look like where, you know, less than 12, 13% of dietitians identify as people of color. I think we see it also in medicine as it relates to physicians and nurses. And, you know, each of these fields are trying to combat the issue that they have with having representation in, in different ways and in similar ways. But yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with saying like, White supremacy culture is, of course, a huge contributor to that narrative. And for us to really move away from it, we have to dismantle that. And and I love to describe white supremacy culture as like, it's just like the water we're all swimming in, like whether we know it or not, like it's around us Mm -hmm. uh, just because of how our country started. Like, so being more conscious of it and being able to like name it and describe how it's impacting people in negative ways is the only way that we're going to be able to kind of like mitigate and, and, and do something about it. But I, but I think, yeah, we have to look at the role that white supremacy plays in healthcare, in like all of our systems mm-hmm. in order to like re- rewrite that. But yeah. It's and like normalizing that. that I think a lot of white providers think from their lens, like I, me and Delaine have talked about this. I have been in the chair working with you know, different cultures and just not have the lived experience to think about a problem outside my own body. So I think that is such an important thing. And why, when you say like, it's getting more normal to talk about social determinants, that's a great thing for people to just be considering, like not all experiences are your experiences. And it can be as simple as just asking somebody 
what's your life like? Like, tell me about your day. Tell me about what's going on so that we don't give individual messages or like reinforce eat better, move more, which yeah, oversimplifies everything. There's a, um, a scholar by the name of Tima Akun. And I, I think there's another person that, that wrote the white supremacy characteristics. I don't know if you all have seen those before, but it's like a list of you know, maybe like 10 white supremacy <laughs> characteristics that, that we see in, in, in white supremacy culture. And one of them is individualism. And it's so funny. I, I looked at this list all the time <laughs> because I see it sometimes in old workspaces that I've been in where it's, you know, a couple other characteristics are like worship of the written word, quantity, value and quantity over quality, uh, power hoarding, fear of conflict. Like all of these things really resonate with like when I've worked in predominantly white spaces, what I'd seen. And so it's so interesting to go and like look at that list and think about how it applies to dietetics and healthcare. But Tessa uh, Nguyen, chef, I think she's on Instagram at the Tessa Nguyen, but is one of Diversified Dietetics. Is it Chef Tessa? Okay. Yeah. She changed it recently. She's one of Diversified Dietetics former board members. And she did a whole series like looking at each of those characteristics and then talking about how it applies to dietetics. So I would highly recommend checking it out. But all of, of what you said, like definitely rings true to like, yep, those are things that have caused us to think that healthcare is just within our individual control and things that we, again, need to like name and try to come up with alternative ways of thinking about it and acting. Yeah. And would invite everyone to think of privilege as not how your life has been hard, but how your life has been easier to navigate because you don't have certain hardships, right? Like, I think we all have certain privileges and I think the word privilege again has been polarized so much. Yeah. (laughs) Just like everything. And it's become such a like politicized word of like, it's a no, no for a lot of people. Like I don't have privilege. I grew up. It's like, you're missing the point. (laughs) Yeah. The point is how has your life not been harder or made hard because of the size of your body, the color of your skin, your language. There's so many things that could affect. And if you haven't had those hardships, it doesn't mean that your life was perfect. It's just that you didn't have those hardships. So I just say that because, you know, we have listeners of all backgrounds and it's important for you to like, think about that. It's like, how has your life not been made harder? That's what privilege is. Right. And And we all have our privileges. Yeah. Like there's so much intersectionality with all of our different identities that like having English as a first language is a privilege that I hold, like being middle-class growing up, like that is Mm -hmm. like, there's so many different aspects and different ways that we can have privilege. Even if, you know, even though I'm a black woman, there are definitely, you know, identities that I have that are not dominant. And so like do come with um, oppression, but there are areas and identities that I hold that, that don't. And like being able to talk about all of those. I think this is important for our listeners who are suffering with chronic dieting. They live with that sort of internalized messaging that, wow, we can link back to white supremacy. Like it's my fault. I should do better. More, more, more. All of those things are what cause suffering in their day-to-day life. And then they hear in the media and like in the research, like, well, no, look, we have all the data. We have all the evidence. Look, look, look. But one of the criticisms that I think dietitians that have this lens say is, well, like we're, we're controlling for race. We're maybe controlling for education, but is that enough to say how systemic oppression impacted someone's health outcomes or their abilities? And so how can we start to like, 
I don't know, this is too big a question. Like, how do we start to account for this so we can learn more about health outcomes? Like the part that the individual behaviors like impact things or don't, like what, what do we do to tease out that whole piece so people individually can make choices if they want to? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, are, are you thinking about it from like, as a practitioner, like as a dietitian or as somebody that's like talking with patients, clients, communities, et cetera? Yeah. As maybe as providers and as consumers mm-hmm. of media, because I think a lot of our, our people are like, oh my gosh, this diet came out or this study came out. And they can use that to convince themselves that the diet cycle is one that they should stay on. But mm. a lot of our research isn't really strong enough or is not appropriately applied because we're not taking into account all of these different things. So maybe a more straight way of saying it is like, how do people take in that media and account for these systems that maybe the research isn't even thinking about half the time? Yeah, that's a, gosh, that's such a hard question. I mean, I think that that's the value in, I think part of it is maybe focusing more internally, like I feel like both of you talk about this and in the way that you counsel individuals, but it's just like not listening to a ton of the like external factors and and focusing more on like, okay, how does this make you feel when you do this movement or eat these things? It it can get very overwhelming thinking about all these like huge Mm -hmm. system problems that exist that are not directly within our locus of control. Like I am happy to talk about, you know, ways that we can help address these system issues and maybe we'll get to that. But, but I think, you know, focusing on what brings you joy. That sounds so corny to say out loud now that I say it, but like, but I think it's a real thing. Like, where do you draw energy? What brings you joy? Do you have those social supports? Like thinking about health in a bigger context, not just like food and physical activity. Like there's your mental health, there's, you know, spiritual health. If that's something that you're interested in, there's just so many other ways to kind of go after after that, that like is more focused internally than, than on like external factors. And I think as providers, like this is why we keep hearing so much about cultural humility, because if we practice with cultural humility, there is a centering of somebody's lived experiences, a centering of that patient, because they are an expert in themselves, obviously, even though you come in with this knowledge, like they also come in with a lot of knowledge and being able to acknowledge that there's a power dynamic there, but, and that you know, sometimes you need to cede that power to the person that you're interacting with. And then that there's always a critical self-reflection um, on your identity in that situation, on like how you interact with that person, how on things that maybe like there's a gap in knowledge. I feel like I learned so much from when I was doing, I don't necessarily do like individual counseling anymore, but there's so much that you learn from each and every interaction that you need to be open to like saying, I don't know, or listening more, or again, just like centering that person's experience. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's what came to mind for me. It it does because I think we put so much, like science is important and science is real. (laughs) And I think sometimes we put so much importance on what the science says without acknowledging there are other data points that are really important. And you've touched on two that are really important. One is your internal experience. One is how you feel in your body and what, what make, what works for you. And the other is thinking about the experience of others, right? How, how things occur outside your own experience. And so I think that's really helpful for consumers to remember, like you don't have to navigate 
the research perfectly, you can look at it and see it as one data point that's incomplete. And then you can have these other data points that help you make decisions. That to me seems like a really solid response to Anna to help people like who are like, but the science says, but I want to be culturally sensitive and I want to take care of, I want to think about social determinants of health. Like what do I do as a person is maybe just deprioritize all of this health messaging and the status quo a little bit. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to navigate it all. Yeah. I was listening to a webinar this morning and it was interesting. It was talking about like food trends that are, you know, obviously it's a new year. So people are like looking at food trends for 2022. Um, And it was saying how, you know, people are becoming less trustful of healthcare or even like dietitians or physicians that that give them not necessarily physicians, maybe, because I think they do hold a lot of trust in, in healthcare, but, but nutrition professionals and those that are like giving health advice because it changes so often. So you were like, what you were telling me like five years ago that I can't have eggs. And now like eggs is okay. Like right. and nutrition is a newer science. Like it, it makes sense that things will change and shift, but I think it's, it's interesting to have access to so much information through our phones and the internet and social media and like figuring out what to do with it. So I, I think you summarized it perfectly, Melissa. Yeah, I'm just sitting here taking it all in. I'm like, I got a little carried away there. I get so excited by these. <laughs> but no, but I think the other point that I would also say is that a lot of the research is also not being done on people that look like Deanna and myself, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the research is being done more on people that look like you, Melissa, because there's a there's an inherent trust that happens with white providers and white clients or research participants or or whatever, there is very much a distrust between people of color and research and, you know, even healthcare practitioners to a certain point because of all the shit that has happened in the past when it comes to research. So I think that, you know, it's something that I often talk about is that just because the research isn't there on our foods or the research isn't there particularly on looking at the individual when it comes to people of color, kind of like adding all those data points, just because that research hasn't been done doesn't mean that your lived experiences don't matter. And it doesn't mean that we can't look at things from a less fearful place, which I think that that's like, I feel one of the other takeaway points that I want the listeners to understand is that like a lot of this messaging is coming from a very fear-based place of, if you don't do this, you will die. (laughs) But it's not so black and white. (laughs) It is not so all or nothing. But I think that that's what public health campaigns do because they want to get your attention. But we're noticing what we all know now that that doesn't work and it actually can backfire in a lot of in a lot of places. So I think that it's taking all of this information and again, doing what works for you, like doing what you can with what you have. I mean, I feel like that's really (laughs) what it's all about. So I don't know, man, it's a lot. But Deanna, I think to, to bring it back to social determinants, like how can we, right, as people, and anybody that's listening to this, how can we focus, right, on working on our health if we do have, you know, low access to like fresh groceries or safe spaces to move or like even just like access to healthcare itself? Mm-hmm. How can we view this from a different point and not let that just be like the final thing? Like, oh, well, can't, can't move. There's no sidewalks. Guess I won't do yeah. it. I would love to hear, obviously, you know, I think my question back to you all, I would love to hear how it works with you and your clients. Yeah. Cause you know, I'm still like super on the macro level at, at dealing with systems, but I will say like from the provider perspective, if there's like folks that 
provide care or are working, you know, within these healthcare systems that I would recommend, because I would hate to put the responsibility like back on the individual mm-hmm. when we're talking mm-hmm. about these like huge system level things. But I would say like, are you thinking about the system? So I'll give an example. So, and this was a, like an analogy that was told to me by a woman named Joy who works with Eat Well Exchange. And she was saying, we think about like, say you're at a river with a friend and you see like puppies floating down the river. So obviously you're like, oh my gosh, there's a puppy floating down the river. Let me grab him, you know, make sure he doesn't drown. Then another one comes down. So you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta grab these puppies. And so you and your friend are just like grabbing puppies out of this little river, this river that's floating down and your friend stops and starts taking off in the opposite direction. And you're like, Where are you, what are you doing? Like, we need to get these puppies out the river. And they're like, I need to go figure out what's happening that these puppies keep getting into the river. Like what is happening upstream? What's happening, you know, closer to the source that is causing these downstream impacts that we're like panicking to just take people out of this river or take the puppies out of the river when we could try to figure out what's happening that's contributing to that. Does that make any sense? So I think that like we as... <laughs> providers and practitioners need to start thinking more upstream. We need to start thinking less about like, okay, how do we solve this one problem that's right in front of us? And how do we get to the root of that problem? And, you know, typically it's like policy and financial resources that we need to start thinking more about and how, you know, how can we use those levers, so to speak, to just create like a better safety net, create these systems. On the individual level though, I'll say that like, Part of that is doing this like anti-racist work, which I know is to like throw out a jargony term that has been all around the internet, but it's so true that like we need to be active about how we're combating these systems of oppression. Like we have to look at policies and practices, whether it's like within the places that we work or, you know, our like state legislator or whatever it is and how they're contributing to in a positive way or in a negative way these systems, these social determinants of health, like what are ways that we're supporting housing? What are ways that we're supporting access to education and access to grocery stores, et cetera. And I think sometimes we can get so hyper-focused on just like the issue that's right in front of us that we don't look more upstream. We don't look at like the root causes. And I think we have a responsibility to do that as providers and as people that care about health. Ooh, love it. Love it. Love it. Especially because again, I feel like I will venture to say, and you all comment and and let us know if I'm wrong, but I feel like the person that listens to this podcast is listening because they have some form of privilege or not, and is more of a professional, maybe a first generation, has the ability to work on their health, but also help dismantle the systems of oppression. Yes kind of at the same time. And I will answer you because you said, how do like we as providers help with like the low access to healthcare, groceries and all that stuff. And I think that the way that I view it working in Philadelphia and working with low income communities is that I help people do what they can with what they have. Like exactly what, you know, I said earlier, it's like, okay, if you don't have healthcare, like how can we get you the healthcare? Like how can we apply? Like some people don't have access to computers. I work with a lot of people that don't even speak the language. So a lot of the times in my office, we're filling out these applications together. Like not only am I educating on like things that you can do to better right now, but also like how can we look towards the future and help you with like getting that healthcare access, getting your SNAP, getting your WIC benefits. Like there's no shame in any of that. And I think that there's also a lot of shame and guilt in accepting help because nobody wants free right? Everybody wants to be able to afford. So I think that 
making them see that like, this is just a stepping stone to get you to where you you have to be is important. And I think that that's one of the ways that I try to help anyone that has low access to any of these points and then speaking against it, right? Like we're doing right now on this podcast or, you know, when people call me crazy on Instagram, that's okay. But like, that's how I use my privilege, right? Mm -hmm, That's how I use my voice and the fact that I do have access to all of this, but then I work with people that don't. So I think that we can all do our part. Mm -hmm. Even a little bit counts. Yeah. Whenever you said like the the anti-racist work or like that internal reflection work, I agree with you, Delina. Our listeners, our clients, 100% are from coming from a place of privilege. They have the time, the means, the energy to explore their lifestyle. They're more in a thrive mode than a survive mode. And I think a lot of the individual healing that happens in part comes from exploring bias we talk a lot about anti-fat bias or fat phobic beliefs, but those link to racist beliefs to some extent. And so anytime you're internally challenging these associations you've learned about what it means to be a certain size or certain skin color, what are the characteristics of people who look like that? You're also challenging that within yourself. And that is a liberating process for you to have a stronger connection with your body. So you can get that joy Deanna's talking about. You can connect with that internal experience. And so for me, I think, again, using our pages to raise awareness, to ask questions, to chip at bias with our clients, really pushing them to say, hmm, where does that belief you're lazy come from in a way that's non-judgmental and giving them space to talk about that does impact how you show up in the world. And who knows how that impacts how you show up in your community and other places. So I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that that is a part of the intuitive eating space that sometimes get lost in translation. Like I I do think that it has to go with the intuitive eating work you're doing is also looking at why do I believe this about myself in the first place? Yeah, totally. And I I feel like in the last couple of years, there's been kind of a sense of like fatigue around talking about these issues and we can't stop, like we can't, we can't stop talking about them because they are impacting, you know, all of us day to day. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you called that out. It's a lot. It's a heavy topic. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's a heavy topic because nobody wants to feel like they're part of the problem. Right. And like you said, we're all swimming in that water, whether we want to be or not. It's the way that the world has gone around for God. That centuries yeah. <laughs> at this point and dismantling could feel hard and it could feel mm-hmm. scary that you're yeah. speaking up against things like this and you know you have to take it with whatever comfort level you have obviously but standing up for what you believe in is important mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm glad you mentioned I'm just thinking about in, in the work that I'm doing in my like nine to five it's obviously like a very public health space. And we work with a lot of like government organizations and nonprofits and and like a, a lot of different stakeholders that really could be really powerful thinking specifically about like how weight stigma and weight bias impact public health. My first job was as a Head Start and early Head Start, like child nutrition manager. And I remember like a lot of the money or some of the money that we got in order to feed the kids was related to us weighing them. Like we had to get a BMI on all of these like five and under little kids and like give a letter to a parent. 
and it just did not feel right for me. And so now that I'm in this role, that's kind of like a step removed from direct care and working with people that like set the policy. I'm like, okay, how can we like blow the system up so that we don't have to be so reliant? Yeah. Like, so we don't have to be so reliant on funding for, as a way to kind of stigmatize children in this specific instance based on their weight. And I'm just giving this as an example of like what kind of that digging into what the policies and practices are and your locus of control that you could think about like replacing them. Because as you mentioned, Melissa, like this weight bias and weight stigma is also tied into racism. And so, yeah, why are we so reliant on this measure of BMI when we are getting more and more evidence each day that it's not an effective tool for for measuring health? And so, yeah, it's been really tough because these systems have had this tool for so long. It's tied to money. It's like baked into it. It's been part of the water that has just been like around. And now somebody trying to, it's me and a few other people that are, are trying to get that ball rolling on like, okay, what if we did something different? And it's been met with some resistance and some people like very skeptical about it and questioning it. But I think having support and having community is so important. So like in that specific instance, and also when I think about diversified dietetics and how we want to change what the the face of nutrition looks like, we're able to do that because of community. Like we're able to continue to push forward because we're not trying to do it on our own. I'm sure there's, there's that quote. That's like, if you want to go far, go alone. If you want to I don't know. I messed up the quote, but you know the one I'm talking about. Like, if you want to go far, go together. <laughs> this is a podcast fast, where we, we, hope, we hope our listeners always kind of get the gist. We, 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 we never just, know. There's a je ne sais quoi. We want you to just pick up what we're putting down. <laughs> no, right. If you want, I think it's if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Okay. So go. I'm going to, I'm going to say that that's it. And we're going to go with I'll it. I'll look up. Okay. <laughs> But I think that that is a powerful tool if people are thinking about like, oh my gosh, I, I, I know I play a role. I know I have a role that I need to, to, to play in advancing equity and in like dismantling inequities. How do I do that? It's so overwhelming. Like you get together with people that also want to do it um, yeah. and you get, keep the ball rolling. Focusing on weight fixes the problem so badly. Like when there's only one outcome, which is like, make them smaller, get yourself smaller. All the solutions are boring and monotonous and repetitive. And that's why to, to your, your point, Deanna, like you guys keep changing the rules. Cause like we're, we're, we're out of moves on this, this construct. We are out of moves on the let's get everyone to lose weight construct guys. They're, they're, we've tried all the things repeatedly. The science is showing it's not working and we can't let it the F go for some reason. So this idea of you like Ditching the BMI, ditching the weight as a metric means that your programs, your people, the inspiration, the brainstorming, what we actually do for solutions is going to start to evolve and become more dynamic and diverse. And like, that just gets me so excited because I'm effing tired of hitting my head against a wall personally in my life as a dietitian. It is so exciting to just let go of the effing weight as the be all end all. It's a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, it's there's a, a reason, there's a reason why it's that, a why that BMI stays. It's low. Well, yeah. It's, it's tied to the money, right? Like we know that, like it's, we all three of us know that. And a lot of, a lot of listeners already know that, like, it's just tied because it's an easy, lazy metric to use of like, it works, but it only works for three weeks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Though, because it worked. <laughs> yeah. But as individuals, you can opt out. Yeah. And this is where intuitive eating, where sometimes it lacks on some of its big picture thinking. The first principle is rejecting diets. And I think that that is actually a really powerful thing to do because 
the less power diets have, the less the money is going into that system and we can maybe make a new one. I don't know. Yeah. And, and to bring in the patriarchy, if you Again, here we go. you got the energy to fight these. Okay. You got the energy <laughs> to fight these mofos. It's true. So. If you're yeah. feeding yourself, that's true. I don't do, I don't do nothing on an empty stomach. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like roll the tapes, me having an attitude problem when I am not. <laughs> Angry Delina is not a fun Delina. We are not, we're not doing yeah. anything. <laughs> Never. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, this is an amazing conversation. I feel like we could probably go on for hours and hours and hours, but we're going to have to cut it here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I understand that this has been amazing. I had such a good time talking with y'all. I'm really glad you exist in the world and it truly like <laughs> so nice. people at your level, like at the systems level who can just kind of take pause and say, well, mm, actually just mm, one, one minute, hold on. Let's think about like, that is so, so powerful. So just keep doing what you're doing and know that it matters. Not everyone can be up at that level. And I'm glad you are. I'm ecstatic that you're there. And it's just, you know, it's just amazing that you're actually sitting in these rooms, sitting at these tables saying, hold the front door. I don't know if they're listening yet, but <laughs> they will. Petition. <laughs> yeah, we'll try, we'll try. But I mean, you can make ripples at every single yeah. level. So it's, it's, we're all, we're all in this together for, for lack of a better corny line. <laughs> we've done a lot of corny lines. That's fine. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. And just as a takeaway, I guess, to summarize this for our listeners, I will say that, you know, health is not, we're not in control of it as much as we think one and two, you can work on it individually for yourself, but you could also work on it and dismantling a lot of the systems around you, your life and in places where in your community. And I think the last thing I will say that I don't think we said directly is that like you learn every day. So what you knew yesterday is going to be different than what you know now after listening to this. So even though it's scary and it seems like crap, why was, why am I still swimming in this water? One, we all are. And two, every day you can do something different to be able to change that. And every day you're going to learn something else. And what you didn't know, you didn't know. And I just want to say that to everybody that like, you don't have to be woke right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll just close that I, <laughs> woke is new to me. I'm learning too. So if, if you need company on becoming a better person, hello, my name is Melissa. That's it. <laughs> that's it that's what we're gonna end with you can be a better person every day <laughs> Not Deanna, in an way. <laughs> where can people support you diversify dietetics let our listeners know how we can support you and your work so you can support diversify dietetics on we're mostly on instagram or our website which is diversifieddietetics.org on instagram at diversify dietetics i'm on instagram at deanna.rdn and that is, I think the main way, you know, I feel like Instagram is, is mainly how you can get in touch with either myself or uh, us as Diversified Dietetics, but we are really excited within the organization. We have a summit coming up in May, which I think Delina spoke at our first one last year. So this one's a little bit more broad. So we will have that coming up in May and then hoping to do in-person meetups in the spring, depending on what Omarion and any other variants are doing. <laughs> 
And then, of course, we are starting our very own dietetic internship. We are so excited. That's supposed to, we're supposed to take our first class in January of 2023. So exactly a year from now. So if you want to support that effort, you can donate on our website. But I really appreciate the time to talk about social determinants of health. I'll share that white supremacy characteristic oh, yeah. list with y'all and the visual for, for SDOH in case anybody kind of wants to see it and, and needs an image because I think it's, it's super helpful. But Thank y'all for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you. We'll put all of that in show notes for you guys. All right, everybody. See ya. Bye. Bye. I know that it's really hard, right? And it's something that is not often talked about and can seem very scary to look at life through this different lens, to really sit and think about how much of our health, one, isn't really much in our control, and two, how some of these oppressive systems have really shaped how we view health and ourselves. And as difficult as this topic is, it's important for us to do the work, all of us. It's the water that we swim in, as Deanna said. So if you're here and you're struggling just to figure out how all of this intersects with your relationship to food, your relationship to your health, even breaking the diet cycle, I invite you to check out my bundle because I work specifically from this viewpoint. And I want you to really think about how all of this has shaped your life on how you view your cultural foods and how you even view yourself. So go on over to yourlatinanutrition.com check out the bundle and mini courses and see if this work is for you, if you're ready to do it. And I'm excited for you. Right, Melissa? Your excitement is bubbling over all the time. (laughs) You teach me so much about this and have got me thinking differently. I mean, you know, you've impacted my practice, how I work with people. So I totally recommend people check out the bundle because just the way you present information, especially if you're someone who feels like they've gone through discrimination based on the color of your skin and your cultural foods, there's no one better to teach it. So I'm glad that you have made this bundle for people to check it out and understand. All right, you guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks for being here and being who you are. Peace, love, and break the diet cycle.